2020. Um, gosh, an- another brand new year. Whenever we switch over to the new year, uh, the, the kind of the arbitrariness of time uh, kind of strikes me again. Here we put this line in the sand and say, okay, it's a new year. If we stopped counting, would time really exist? Have you ever thought about that? How do we even know that time is passing? Never thought about that. See, nobody thinks about these things except me. <laughs> Does anybody care? <laughs> there are three main circles that, that keep time for us. It's the, the earth spinning on its axis. It's the earth rotating around the sun. And it's the moon rotating around the, uh, revolving around the earth. Those three circles are what give us any sense of time at all. That and entropy. You know what entropy is? Second law of thermodynamics. It means that everything goes from order to chaos, always in that order. That means we get old. And so we can look in the mirror and we can see entropy in the mirror and see that time is passing. But also time is relative. Einstein told us that. said space and time are intimately and inextricably connected, but they're also relative. Did you know, did you know that the faster you go, the slower time goes? So that if you're going anywhere near the speed of light, time almost stops. Did you further know that time goes slower, the denser the gravity is? So your clock that you put on your tabletop is going a little bit faster than the clock that's on the floor. And if it's on the mountain, it's going slower than the one at sea level. Interesting stuff. It's useless, but it's really interesting. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think it's just so fascinating. Actually, physicists are saying that, that, you know, time basically, as we experience it, is just a perception. At, at the very smallest, you know, quantum particles, time doesn't exist the way we express it. And in the largest cosmic, you know, areas in the macro, it doesn't really exist. It exists as we experience the spinning of these circles in space and also entropy. But that's a subjective perception. Now, we're all having this delusion together, so that's a good thing, and we can say it's reality. But in many ways, sometimes we've talked about the aborigines in here who consider their dream time, that all at once, everyone that I was kind of getting to in the communion meditation uh, is really, for them especially, is the real absolute truth about time, that it exists altogether, all in one space, past, present, future. Everything is all one thing, every when. And the way that we experience it as a linear thread is the perception. And uh, I kind of like that because I think that's exactly what the contemplatives are getting at, the mystics are getting at. And as we move into this experience with God, it's what we're getting as well. But back here on planet Earth, the alarm is going to ring tomorrow and you're going to have to get up. So sorry about that. But this idea of time as we pass the new year is always interesting to me. And what else do we do when we cross this arbitrary line of the new year? A lot of us make New Year's resolutions, except for Vernon, who made a point to say that he's not going to make any New Year's resolutions this year, and Marion seconded that. Uh, But uh, statistically, at least 45% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. Have any of you made New Year's resolutions? What's wrong with you people? How can we only have the 55% in this room? We don't have any of the 45% in this room? Well, people do make New Year's resolutions. You know, you don't want to know what the top 10 New Year's resolutions are? 
Yeah, yeah. Earn more money. Lose weight. <laughs> more money, less weight. Get organized. Huh? Manage time better. How about that one? Spend more quality time with the family. Reduce debt. Help others. Find a soulmate. Or work on your marriage. Find a better job. And quit smoking. That's the top ten, statistically speaking. Are yours in there? Any of yours? Well, you're not making any, so forget it. <laughs> I always like the one that Nia Vardalis, you know who she is, the actress who was in my big fat Greek wedding? You know, her New Year's resolution. She says, my New Year's resolution list usually starts with a desire to lose between ten and 3,000 pounds. <laughs> but I found some others, too, that you might like. This one is, I will delete the Facebook app from my phone and only log in to check it once a day. Some of you were just talking about that, that you've already done that. I think it was you, Scotty. Yeah. I won't send a text to someone sitting in the next room. Or in the same room. (laughs) I will walk wherever I'm walking without staring at, using, or listening to my phone. I think that's a really good one. When I hear a funny joke, I will not reply LOL or ROTFLOL. How many of you know what ROTFLOL was? I had to look it up. Rolling on the floor laughing out loud. Yes, you got it. I will not bore my boss by the same excuse for taking time off. I will think of some new excuses. I will always replace the gas nozzle before driving away from the pump. I will start buying lottery tickets at a luckier store. (laughs) I won't get Ubers for journeys I can walk in 15 minutes. I will do less laundry and use more deodorant. I will not sit in my living room all day in my pajamas. Instead, I will move my computer into the bedroom. I resolve to stop poisoning my family with my cooking. And finally, I will learn what the word resolution means. All right. Um, These are funny to us to the extent that they were, primarily because we know how hard it is to keep a New Year's resolution. Right? Those of you who have tried to keep a New Year's resolution, how long did it last? Statistically, about 97% of New Year's resolutions won't be kept. 97%. 30% of all resolutions are broken within the first week. Most resolutions are abandoned by the third week in January. 45% of Americans usually set New Year's resolutions, except for y'all. Only 8% are always successful in achieving their resolutions. 8%. The younger you are, the more likely you are to achieve your resolutions. 39% in their 20s achieve resolutions every year or every other year. And less than 15%, over 50, achieve their resolutions every year or every other year. Less than 15%. The less happy you are, the more likely you are to set a New Year's resolution. I guess that means you all are just ecstatically happy with life, right? That must be it. And lastly... There is actually no correlation between happiness and resolution setting or resolution success. People who achieve their resolutions every year are no happier than those who do not set resolutions or who do not achieve their resolutions. Now, those last two are interesting to me. All right? The less happy you are, the more likely you're going to set a resolution. But setting a resolution doesn't make you any happier. Even keeping the resolution doesn't make you any happier. Now, this is another testament to the fact that happiness comes from a whole different direction. It's not going to come from the outside in. It's not going to come from your accomplishments. 
You know, there may be a, a, a momentary dopamine hit that you get when you do that, but overall, it's not going to make the difference. It's something that is internal to us. Our happiness comes from the inside out. But this difficulty in keeping resolutions leads to a certain cynicism and skepticism about our ability to change at all. But I have a few more quotes here. Many people look forward to the new year for a new start on old habits. May the new year bring you courage to break your resolutions early. My own plan is to swear off every kind of virtue so that I triumph even when I fall. And that was Aleister Crowley. Oscar Wilde famously said, Resolutions are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. I like that one. And Joey Adams said, May all your troubles last as long as your New Year's resolutions. That's a pretty good one. But at the same time, you know, we want to know that change is possible. We want to know that we can make a resolution, we can set a direction, and we can move in that direction. I mentioned Einstein before. He said, life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. A new year on the way and the possibilities are endless. A new year is on the way and the possibilities are endless. There is something in the human spirit that keeps us moving and keeps us looking for change, keeps us hopeful for change, even if we are what feels like the doldrums right now. So I suppose the question becomes, you know, why are resolutions so hard? Why is it so difficult for us to keep resolutions? And the answer to me is simple. A resolution, if you think about those resolutions, whether it's quitting smoking, whether it's finding a new job or doing any of the things that we talked about doing, those are changes in the way that we live our lives. They're lifestyle changes. They require require muscle memory an intellectual decision is just a small part of that. The decision is basically just stated intentions, if you want to look at it that way. We've said what we want to do. That's the decision. And no matter how resolute we are in the mental decision, it's going to be the lifestyle change over time that really makes all the difference in the world. That's really what the difference, why, why it's so difficult for us to keep these, these resolutions, you know, It's all about repeated, ongoing action with the discipline and the dedication that that takes and to keep showing up for that resolution day after day, moment after moment until the resolution actually takes. But that takes time. It's saying, like saying, I do on your wedding day. But you've got to get up every day and say, I do again and again and again or essentially you're saying, I don't. It's not a event. It's an ongoing process. Anything worth having in life is like this. Think about the things that are most valuable to you. A reputation? Your character? Is it a business? Is it a relationship? Those things are not intellectual decisions alone. They may start there, But they are what we do over time, every day, showing up over and over again that makes a difference. And yet, we all have our bucket list, don't we? You all have a bucket list? Yeah? These are the things that we think about that we want to do at least one time before we die. You know, I still like to go to Israel. Marion and I talk about that. That's on a bucket list. But here's the thing. 
We put so much emphasis on the bucket list, on the one-offs, on the peak experiences that we forget that we're not defined by what we do just once. We are defined as people by what we show up to every day, day after day. What we really value as human beings is, is constancy, isn't it? Consistency. The friends that you cherish most are the ones that are constantly who you can trust. And why do you trust them anyway? Because they have constantly shown up to be trustworthy over time. That's the only way you trust anything, is if you have shown up to it and it has shown up to you to be trustworthy over time. We value that. It can't be bought. It can't be transferred. There is no way to get it except through the day-by-day experience of showing up and showing up. The stores that you love, man, they need to be open when they say they're open and always open at the time they're open. Mary and I went to a restaurant the other day. It was supposed to be open till 4. We got there at 2.30. It was closed. Ah! Can't trust them anymore. Are they going to be open when we say they're open? You know, church, what if you showed up at 10 o'clock? Or, this is the effect, what if you showed up at 10.10 and nobody was here? What would you do the next Sunday? You'd be calling, you'd be checking, maybe, you know, or you wouldn't be sure anymore. What we really prize as human beings is consistency, constancy. These are the things that we value, if you really think about it. But it can't be bought, and you can't just think it. It's something that has to be done over and over and over again. And to be really honest, this is why it's so hard to follow Jesus, to follow Jesus' way. We imagine, we would like to imagine that it's an event, that we just decide to get on the way, we say the sinner's prayer, we do the baptism, we do the things that we do, and we're a new creature in Christ, and everything is going to be on the line from then on. Salvation is like that. We just do the things that we're supposed to do scripturally, and then we're on the line. It would be so much easier if that were true. But salvation, as Jesus talks about it, is not like a pledge of allegiance to God or a pledge of allegiance to a theology or a doctrine. It's a resolution, like a New Year's resolution. It's a lifestyle change. It's a change of the way of life that is radically different as a way of living. And it's radically different enough that allows us to see God as God is, God where God is, God when God is. It's a radical shift in consciousness. It's a shift in our viewpoint. It's a shift in the way that we live that allows us to be able to see something that was invisible to us before. But this is something that happens as we show up to it over and over and over again. Paul talks about this, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, which doesn't mean what we think it means, those words. You know, It means with the awe. It means with the humility. It means with the sense of the, the respect of the relationship that we have, but continuing to show up day by day to the same place at the same time with the same attitude, with the same resolve that tamps this down so deeply in our spirit that it takes and it becomes who we are. That's it. The way of Jesus is who we are at root. If we will show up to it enough, 
that it strips away everything that seems like something different. Jesus knows how hard this is. This is really hard for us. He's always talking about the process of fundamental radical change, how that works, how absolutely essential it is, that it's a prerequisite for following him in the first place. Are you really ready to sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me? Are you really ready to pick up your cross daily, every single day, every single moment? Take on not what we think of as the cross, but allow ourselves, that egoic mind, to die, to put it up on the cross, to become aware of who we really are. This is the imagery that Jesus is giving us. He's trying to get this across. And there's one parable in particular that I think does a masterful job at trying to get this essential idea across. You know, what it is like to show up day after day. And this is what's typically called the sower and the seeds, or just the sower, the parable of the sower. But really, the sower is not the protagonist. The sower should not be in the title. It's just kind of a convenient way to think about it. Really, what the parable about is about are the four soils, the four different types of soils. So it really should be the parable of the four soils. And there are lots of scholars who call it that. It's typically not what we think of it as. But I think that really makes a difference. If we think of it as the parable of the four soils, then we're kind of honing in to the point that Jesus is trying to make. Let's read a part of it. Let's start at Matthew 13, starting at verse 1. We're just going to go to verse 23, Brandon, and then we'll, uh, we'll pick up the next section in a minute. So that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. This is probably in Capernaum, and uh, the house was either his or one that he was living in at the time when he came back from his wilderness journey. The family had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. All of that is clues and alluded to in the scriptures, but we typically don't think of that as, as, uh, as part of Jesus' life. But that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat, and he sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. And then he said, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depths of soil, but withered away. When the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears... Let him hear. And that's a favorite idiomatic expression of Jesus. He who has ears, let him or her hear. This is this call to this radical change in, in consciousness, a new way of hearing, being able to hear things that were opaque, that were, that were just moving through you before. But if you have ears, new ears, hear what it is I'm trying to say. Now, I've heard some criticism you know, from, uh, from scholars and I suppose just folk, that, you know, this sower, this farmer was pretty sloppy, pretty inefficient, just throwing seed all over the place, and it's just going everywhere, and three-quarters of the soils are not going to produce what he's looking for. There's only one soil out of the four, but he's just throwing it everywhere. You ever wonder 
Isn't that kind of seem kind of strange? I mean, don't you think that he should have been preparing the soil, you know, making his furrows and breaking up the soil, fertilizing it, doing this, and carefully putting his seed in the rows and then covering it over? See, this doesn't reflect, though, the reality of Galilean, ancient Galilean agriculture. And this is one of the beautiful things when you get into it. What Jesus is saying makes perfect sense, and his hearers would have understood it that way because it was common experience for them. In Galilee, what you have are hillsides, lots of rolling hills and hillsides, and your land is not going to be level. And the Galilean hillsides are very thin soil over basalt rock foundation, or, or, or you know, just foundation stone. What would you call that? Bedrock. Okay, so the basalt's under there. There's a thin covering of soil, lots of rocks protruding every which way, and, and bushes and all this sort of thing. So how is it that you actually farm that kind of land when that's all you got to work with? Well, it turns out the best and most efficient way to do it is wait till the early rains that come in late October and early November. Let them soften up the soil, and then go out and just scatter the seed. Don't worry about just furrowing and doing certain things. Just put it out there and then go ahead and cover it up, plow it over where it lands on the soil. The crop itself will outweigh the wastage that you have going into rocks in different places. Now, obviously, the sower is trying to hit the good soil, but he's not really worried about where it doesn't go because it takes too much time otherwise. So this reflected the way that the ancient farmers would actually farm. But Jesus uses it because it gives us the perfect description for the listener's experience to his teaching or to anything that is radically new and radically different. And this is why he says, if you got ears, hear. But you're going to need new ears in order to hear this. New ears in order to be able to find your way through what I'm trying to give you right now. What Jesus is, in a sense, trying to do is prepare the spiritual soil. The same way that the early rains prepare the physical soil, softening it up, allowing something to penetrate, getting the water in there so that it can all work together. Now we've got the same thing going on with Jesus and the parable, trying to get something that is going to start getting the person ready, getting their heart, getting their mind ready as they they move into a new place. Jesus is raining parables on people, if you want to think of it that way. Raining parables down on people who are too hard-packed in their thinking, in their understanding, in their belief systems, to be able to understand something directly. I mean, have you ever talked to somebody and everything you say is just bouncing off their force field? I mean, it's just not, it just happens all the time with politics these days, doesn't it? Yeah? We've got our hard-set opinions, wherever they are, and stuff is just not penetrating, not getting through. The parable is a way to bypass that cognitive resistance, that force field, and kind of rain down and percolate and break things up. It's not coming directly. It's not coming logically. It's not coming in a straight line. And so the resistance doesn't get set up. It's not perceived as a threat yet. But as you start to think about what it is that's going on, it starts to move into a different place. Jesus is trying to prepare this soil this way. His disciples ask why he uses parables in the first place. And his response is really interesting. Take a look, starting at verse 10. And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered, To you 
it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Well, that's kind of a bummer, don't you think? Doesn't it sound to you like God has already picked the winners and the losers? What's up with that? Kind of exclusionary? Kind of non-Jesus-like? Kind of a slap in the face. And then he's just getting warmed up. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. What the heck? Hold on to that thought for a second. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly, I say to you, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now, where's Jesus going with this? I mean, what the heck is going on? This is another Hebrew idiomatic way of speaking. And it's difficult for us because what it does, to us it sounds as if the results or the consequences of an action are in fact the cause or the purpose of the action. All right? That was probably clear as mud, right? Um, Here's the deal. The Jews believed that God was absolutely sovereign. The Jews believed that God was absolutely in control. And everything that happened, happened because God willed it to happen. And nothing could possibly happen that God didn't will. Therefore, everything that happened was because God willed it. Does that make sense? Okay. So when they express anything that has happened, they express it as if it was willed by God. So think, many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus said that, right? Does that mean that God has already picked out the ones that are going to be called and the rest are just knocking at the door and no one's going to answer? Does that really sound like Jesus? Does that sound like who he is? See, the idea here... Oh, another one. If you forgive your brother, then your Father in heaven will forgive you. But if you don't forgive your brother, then neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Flies in the face of everything that we know about God's love. What is going on there? See, the truth of the matter is, is that it's an idiomatic way of speaking. God is presented as the actor, presented as the doer, but only because of this understanding that they had that nothing fell outside of God's ken. Nothing fell out outside of God's will. The truth of the matter is we are always the actor. We create the results of the circumstances or somebody else's actions do for us. But it's not God doing it to us. The real understanding of many are called, but few are chosen, is that many are called, actually all are called, but few choose to be chosen. The call is there, but how many actually pick it up? It's kind of like his idea of the narrow gate and the narrow way leading to life, but few go that way. Same sort of idea there. And the idea of forgiveness, it's not that God is withholding forgiveness until we perform like a trained seal for the fish. 
It's that until we forgive, we will never know that God's forgiveness precedes us. God's forgiveness is who he is, not something he does. God is love. God is forgiveness. It's always there. It's a fact. But if we hold on to the enmity in our hearts, if we hold on to the unforgiveness, we will never know that we are already forgiven ourselves. But as soon as we let go, it's all there. The connection is all there. We are the actor, not God. The same thing is happening here with the parables. Jesus says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. It means that they have actually picked it up. They're the ones who actually dropped their nets, dropped everything at the tax booth, and followed Jesus. That invitation was open to anybody. But there was only a few that actually made the resolution real to leave something of value and follow Jesus on the promise of something that was more valuable. And to keep doing it day after day after day until these things that were raining down on them finally started to take root. Yes, to them has been granted the mysteries of the kingdom because they acted, because they followed, because they were resolute. To the other ones, no, because they haven't put in the time. Jesus is still raining down the parables on them. But this would be the, the understanding or the way through this. How are we supposed to understand this? This is, this is so difficult for us to understand this, this idiomatic style and to realize that Jesus is not excluding anyone. You know, we are the actor. And then he goes on, and this another one is even more difficult. Whoever has, more shall be given. He will have an abundance, but who does not have even that shall be taken away from him. Again, it's not God doing the giving or the taking. There is an interesting phenomenon to following Jesus. I suppose to following any course of study that is new to you. At the beginning, the curve is real flat. It's linear. You know, you're gathering knowledge. You're learning. You're, you're chunking away at resistance as your mind. You're trying to, to you know, absorb enough facts. And, and maybe you're making some progress, but it's really slow. And all of a sudden, you get to a point where the curve just takes off exponentially. You get enough of it together and everything starts making sense. And everything new that comes in just sort of snicks into place and you know where to put it. Have you ever experienced that? It's like this with our spiritual growth as well. You know, To who, he who has, she who has something, more will be given. It'll just keep going. But to those who aren't putting in the time, even the things they think they have, when life's difficulties come, where is it? Where is your faith if it's not deep enough to be able to withstand the difficulties in your life? This is the real world cause and effect that Jesus is talking about. It's not exclusionary. Everyone has the same chance. God is an equal opportunity lover. All right? We all have the same chance here. But the way that it is presented makes it look as if it's something different. But what Jesus is coming back to is that without this fundamental shift in consciousness, nothing can be given at all, given in quotes. Remember, these basic things aren't given. They are received. But this fundamental shift is what's at issue. Jesus is trying to prepare everyone who is willing to listen for a fundamental shift in the way that we look at life 
so that we can actually see God in action. And the parable is what prepares us for the shift. We can't take it cognitively, directly. Our minds are not ready for that. We're not wired for that. But the the story percolates down. In in Aramaic, the word is matla, matla that that has been translated into parable into parables. What that literally means at root, matla, means to stretch out, to extend, to provide, to provide cover for. And by extension from that, a story or a riddle. But think about the root meanings, to, to stretch out or to extend. Not to just give you the answer, but to give you context. To give you a, a stretched out and extended metaphor, a story. A place to, to start to put some of this stuff. And to provide cover for. See, the thing about matla, the thing about a parable, is that it reveals as much as it hides, or it hides as much as it reveals. It's interesting the way that it does that. It's giving us something, but it's hiding it at the same time. And it breaks up our preconceptions. That's the most important thing. Ask Jesus a straight question, and what does he do? He tells you a story. He gives you a parable. He asks you another question, or completely does a non sequitur. Because it's your line of questioning that is the problem. It's your preconception that is your problem. And he's trying to break us through all of that. Yeah. Then Jesus actually interprets the parable for his disciples. And let's take a look at that, starting in verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. But here's the thing about even Jesus' interpretation. It's figurative and metaphorical as well. And when you see, you really see that when you take a look at the root meanings of, the, of, of these central words in the imagery that he's giving. The first one has been translated evil one, and that's unfortunate because the word is satana. Obviously, it's the word that we get Satan from, but it's not hasatan, which means the Satan. When hasatan is used, it's really talking more about an entity or what appears to be an entity or an angel of the Lord. Satana would best be translated adversary. But really, when you go back to the roots of the word, what it really means is that which causes us to turn aside, that which causes us to go astray. The Hebrews have a term called yetzer hara, yetzer hara, and it literally means the inclination to do evil, the inclination to do bad things, as opposed to yetzer hatov, which means the inclination to do good things. Yetzer hara and satana can be used interchangeably in this way, as this inclination, our own inclination. We don't need an outside force acting on us. So when this seed falls on the beaten path and the birds come and take it, the evil one takes it, this idea is it's our own 
distraction, if you want to think about that way. He uses the birds as to further give us the imagery. And birds, parata, means to fly about, to flutter, to squander, to dissipate. In our terms, it would be probably ADD. Think about that. Birds flying and fluttering and, and you know splashing and just making all this noise and all this distraction. For us, it would be ADD, that, that uh, inability to focus. And so both of these ideas of satana, the adversary, the one causing us to move astray, the idea of bisha as being unripe. We're not ready yet to be able to focus on things. And the birds who are fluttering and scattering is all about our choices, all about our inabilities to really focus and stay on point. It's not about God doing something to us. It's about our inabilities. The rocks that he talks about, su'ah in Aramaic, in the roots means to stop up or to obstruct. It's so interesting. All Hebrew words come from verbs. So the nouns were verbs before they became nouns. And so you had a verb that meant to stop up or to obstruct. You had a verb that meant to fly about or to flutter. Well, that became bird. And now this su'ah became the idea for rock. But figuratively, it can mean a closed heart, a hard-headed stubbornness exhibited in a person. And the thorns, kubah in Aramaic, to feel pain, to feel sorrow, to arrest or stop your natural growth, to hold something back. These two together are talking about a person who is holding on to old beliefs, holding on to victimhood, holding on to hurts from the past, not yet ready to move forward. So between our inability to focus and our inability to let go of the things that we're holding on to stubbornly, and the things that have hurt us so badly that they have kind of warped our ability to see life as life is. These are the three soils that Jesus is talking about here. So the question probably that all of you are thinking about, are we good soil? Are we the good soil? Well, you're here, right? You call yourself Christian. Doesn't Christian equal good? Christian equal good soil? You know, This is the way that we have been taught this parable, that the four soils are all about different types of people. And this is the greatest disservice that we can do to this parable. To look at it this way, as, each, as if each one of these three bad soils represents unbelievers, those who have not come to the faith. And the good soil is the one that we are, or those of us who have come to the faith. To look at this parable as a division between us and them is the disservice. Because it's not about two types of people or different types of people. It's about the different parts of ourselves that is really going on here. In recovery, there is a concept of the internal uh, committee. Have you heard that before? Those of you who are in recovery, the committee. They just talk about the committee. That's all the voices that talk to you in your head. They're constantly telling you. It's kind of like the idea of the little angel on the one shoulder and the little devil on the other shoulder. It's just like this voices that are constantly talking to you. In Hebrew thought, there is an internal community or an interior community and an external community. And the goal is that both communities become unified, that they speak with one voice, that anything that you are doing inside is reflected in what you do outside. And so... This is the unification of all of those voices, the unification of the committee. Jesus is saying, all of us are all four soils. 
I mean, haven't you experienced that yourself? That there are still parts of the stone that are not yet smooth, even though a lot of the stone has been smoothed out? Aren't there still strongholds and resistances that you have? Remember Paul in Romans 7? What did he say? You know, what a wretched man I am. All these things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. As far as he had come, as an apostle of Christ, he is still bewailing and bemoaning the fact that the stone is not yet smooth, that there are still different types of soil within his committee. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is where the parable starts to have teeth and traction for us. Not to passively step back and say, hey, I'm on the inside looking out now. I'm the good soil because I said the sinner's prayer and I'm baptized in the church and everybody else out there, not us and them. It's us and ourselves. It is us showing up resolutely every day to keep filing away at the sharp corners of our stone to keep working on the soil that is not producing in ourselves so that it can produce. This parable is not about us and them. It's about us and ourselves. If we're going to make one New Year's resolution this year, what should it be? Well, I think it should be that we grow new ears, that we grow new eyes, that we soften the soil for this radical shift that Jesus is constantly working at us. And some of you have shifted radically already. You've come so far, and that's probably what you're thinking. How much more is there left to shift? You've got infinity before you. You've got an infinite God before you. As far as we come, it's always brand new every time we connect with our God. Are we ready for that? Have we softened our soul for that? Softened our soil for that? Are we ready for the next shift and the one after that? Have we become people that are willing to break up our hard-packed beliefs and our understandings, even the new ones, that after we rest on them for a while, they become hard-packed too? Are we willing to break those up in favor of the next thing that we are shown? You see, Jesus and faith and salvation and spirituality are all ways of living life. They're not beliefs. They're not events There's something that we must show up to every single day, like your job. If you didn't show up to your job every day, you wouldn't have a job. If you didn't show up to your marriage every day, you wouldn't have a marriage. And if you don't show up to your salvation every day, your redemption every day, your faith every day, you don't have it. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Jesus is not a bucket list. Salvation and redemption is not what we do just once. It's what we show up to do over and over, all day, every day. It's who we become. It's who we realize we actually are and always have been. But we've uncovered enough to be able to see. Are we willing to show up every day as a newcomer, right? As a blank slate with loose soil? ready for new seed, and keep showing up that way until our resolution takes? If we can do that, then this time next year, our committee will be one year more unified. The stone will be one year smoother. And we will be more and more able to live as Jesus lived and love as Jesus loved. So that's the prayer for 2020.
that we can show up day in, day out, moment in, moment out, and continue to move in that place. Kathleen? Absolutely, dear. Absolutely. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for everything that you have left us, this magnificent trail of breadcrumbs back to you. All the prophets, the the people that have gone before us, the people that are living around us right now. Father, thank you for giving us everything that we need to be able to do. What you are showing us will bring us completely back into unity with you, connected with you. So thank you for all this. And Father, as we move into this new year, we do, we ask for your blessing. Your blessing understood as our permission that has already been granted to participate fully in the abundance that you've already given us. Take that blessing and make it real in our lives, Lord. This year, bless our year. Allow us as a community, allow us as individuals, allow us each as families to be able to find the fullness of your blessing, the fullness of the abundance of the life that you have given for us. Regardless of where the world goes, regardless of decisions that are made around us, that we will remain resolute and find the blessing that you've given us. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for blessing us as a people and continuing to do so every day as you show up to bless us even further. Thank you, Lord. And never let us forget that we can only do this because you did it first. And we love you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. Let's all stand.